0: Trust you are doing well. Before um, we get into the message this morning, um, I want to celebrate something and also want to spend some time praying for something. So, <coughs> excuse me, a few weeks ago, we challenged the church as we had Pastor Charles here in July as we were celebrating, you know, God's faithfulness and God's generosity that he caused to stir up in our church to plant a church in uh, Karangazi, Rwanda, to further the cause of Jesus Christ in Rwanda. And we felt compelled as a church to plant another church in Rwanda. And so we said a few weeks ago, hey, church, let's, let's do it again. Let's raise another $150,000. I am so Ecstatic to share with you, we raised $150,000 in just a few short weeks, which is absolutely amazing. So I can't wait for Pastor Charles. He just dropped off his son at Biola in California. So he's coming back to Austin today, and I can't wait to share with him exactly what God has did in the church. So that's awesome. Praise the Lord for that. But I also want to spend some time praying because it would be remiss of me to not recognize the stuff that's happening around us. As we look at the news and we see what's happening in Afghanistan. As we see the devastation in Haiti. Even as we start to realize the, the, the pain and anxiety and the stress that even like COVID is bringing again. To schools, to parents, to children. And also even to our loved ones. So I want to spend some time praying. And just laying those things before the Lord. Before we approach him in his word this morning. Father we recognize that this world is a broken place, and I think sometimes we downplay that. Lord, as we notice things in our world, as we recognize the evil that's at play all over the place, we recognize that we are a broken people and that there is one hope, and that hope is found in Jesus. Lord, we pray for those in Afghanistan. We pray for those in Haiti. We pray for our leaders in office, our political leaders. We pray that you would give them wisdom regardless of our own personal opinions on them. We are exhorted to pray and to lift them up so that we can live peaceably. So, Lord, we pray that you would give President Biden and his cabinet and his advisors wisdom. Lord, we pray for our local leaders. We pray for our school teachers. We pray for our school districts, Lord, that you would give them wisdom. Lord, we pray for our loved ones, our friends, our families, and colleagues who are dealing with COVID. We know that some people, even in our church, have lost loved ones due to COVID. Lord, we pray that your peace that surpasses all understanding would be near them. So, Father, we recognize and we can live at peace because we know that you are sovereign. And we know that you brought about a plan of restoration, of redemption through Jesus. So, Lord, Lord, we ask that this morning you would speak to our hearts, that you would bring about the peace that only you can bring about. We pray this in Christ's mighty name. Amen. If you don't know me, my name is uh, Brandon Zisky, the lead pastor here at Austin Oaks Church. I want to say good morning to our classic service over in the community hall. We love you. Glad that you're here with us too this morning. And so I want to ask you a question. How are you doing? How are we doing today? You see, it's it's a really lame pastoral joke. You see what I did there as we playing with our series. I'm not okay. It's always that thing that we do when we cover up. Hey, how are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. How are you doing? I'm good. It's just this thing that we do. It's almost this reflective re- reflex that we have. Like we're tempted to hide from our present state, our present reality. And it's just a small example of what we've been doing ever since humanity kind of started this downward spiral into sin. It's been woven into our DNA when sin entered the world. If you recall last week, we started to talk about that where our great ancestors, Adam and Eve, they chose a lie over the truth. They chose to be like God, to choose their own right and wrong, to choose their own way of doing things and seeing things instead of the way God called them to see things and to do things. And that created a breach in humanity. It created a breach, a separation of how we see ourselves between each other and, worse of all, between us and God. And there's nothing that we can do in our own power ever to restore that. There's nothing that we can do to change or to remedy that damage that was caused by choosing a lie over the truth. It's in our fabric, it's in our DNA to always want to choose our own right and wrong. And when we choose what is right when what is right is actually wrong, we hide because we feel and we instinctively know that what we did was wrong. And so we are a people who are notoriously great at hiding. And when we ask this question, hey, how are you doing? That is just the surface of the great cover-up of how we live. We do this all the time. And this sole decision to choose to be God, to choose to lie over the truth, is actually the very root of all of the pain, of all of the sorrow, all of the confusion, and all the hurt that we experience. It's the cause of all mental health, all physical health, and all societal and familial issues that we all experience. So let's revisit a little bit of this garden scene. All the way back in Genesis chapter 2 and chapter 3. Chapter 2, verse 25, we are told of God's created intention, which was really good. And we see the emotional um, state of being of Adam and Eve. And this is so important. It wasn't just an accidental detail that was thrown into this text. It was very intentional, inspired by the Holy Spirit, to make this forever known. And the man and his wife... They were both naked and not ashamed. They were both completely vulnerable, safe, not hiding, not from each other, not from themselves, and not from God. That was God's good intention. This is how we were to be created. But then another voice enters the story in chapter 3. Now the serpent, Satan, was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say? And he dangles out a distortion of the truth to deceive, to manipulate, to trick Eve into sinning. We have to remember God created with intention. And everything he created was good. And when he created humanity, he said it was very good. And we were created in his image. Naked and without shame. Vulnerable, nothing to hide. This is how God created humanity. It's a reminder, like we said last week, that humanity is at its best when we are vulnerable and connected with God and each other. We need to be reconciled. We need to be restored. The fact that this was written... And even the fact that after they sinned and the, te- the text tells us that their eyes were opened and they realized that they were naked, they hid and they sowed fig leaves and God had to come and start asking some questions like, who told you you were naked? Who told you that this was wrong? This text that we've been studying last week and even a little bit today, it tells us what the emotional vortex was at that time, which the history of sin revolves around, and it's shame. Exchange the truth of God for a lie. God's original created intention was for humanity to be vulnerable, without shame, where we understood, I am who God says I am. But because we chose to be God, we chose to determine what was right and wrong on our own, Now we sinned, and we realize that we're naked, and being vulnerable is risky business, it's dangerous, it's full of turmoil, so I'm going to cover myself because I'm ashamed. So now I am who I say that I am, and I am who you say that I am. That's what ended up happening in the garden. We realize that vulnerability was dangerous, and so we covered up. But not only that, we took on a brand new identity that has forever marked us. We no longer believe and live out in the truth of who God says we are. We live out and believe the truth of who we think we are and what other people say of us. Satan's lie had two parts. One, you can be like God. False. There's only one God. You have to be uncreated in order to be God. God was the only uncreated being ever, so you can't be like God. But they were already like God because God created them in their image. Ooh, he's so tempting right there. How many of you love to play God? Okay, I'm just going to call you all sinner right now. You all do. And you know why? Because it's the other part of the lie, that you can choose what is right and wrong? That you have the capability on your own to determine what is right and what is wrong. Now, let me ask you this question. How many of you like rules? Now I get of it, I get it. Some of you are just naturally born rule followers. You're the exception. But all of us, we we don't like always being told what to do. Like, how many of you enjoy backseat drivers? Oh my goodness. Now that my daughter's getting older and she's starting to think about driving, she has this nerve to sit in the back seat every now and then in the front seat and tell me how to drive. Dad, you, you shouldn't have passed that person. How do you know? It's a white line. She's like, yeah, but it's supposed to be dotted. What do you know? That was the speed limit. It doesn't matter as long as I'm going at least nine and not ten over. I'm telling you right now, if I ever walk by and I see a wet paint sign that says do not touch, I'm like, yeah, right, I'm going to touch it. Like, how many of us have that instinct that we just got to do what we want to do? Don't tell me what's right and wrong. In fact, a lot of people have a hard time with Christianity with that because they're like, oh, religion's just a crutch. It's a bunch of archaic rules. You're going to follow what this book of make-believe stuff tells you to do? We're not childish. We are on our own. We're sophisticated people now. We're enlightened people now. We know what's right and we know what's wrong. Look at our culture. You want to know why we're in the mess we're in? Because humanity has decided what is right and wrong. It's messed up everything. How's that going for you? We do this all the time. We decide what is right and wrong in, in regards to culture. We decide what's right and wrong with in regard to our sexuality, our finances, what we watch, the certain relationships we in, how we deal with others, how we treat our enemies, the anger, the revenge, the forgiveness. I'm not a child anymore. I know the difference between right and wrong. And what I choose is right is right and what's wrong is wrong. I don't need God to tell me that. Well, Eve decided that eating the tree that God said don't eat of was desirable and good. And so she decided what God said was wrong was right. Put her in the position of God. Genesis 3, verse 6. So when when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes. Yeah, friends, listen. Sin can look good. That's why we sin. We get deceived into thinking that what is wrong looks right. And so, therefore, I'm going to determine that that right that I've thought now is right is actually right, even though God says it's wrong. And it was a delight to the eyes, and a tree was to the desire to make one wise. I'm going to go with what culture says. I'm going to be enlightened. I'm going to go with it because that's what's wise today. To make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. And then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked before. They never knew this. And they sewed fig leaves together. They hid from themselves. They hid from each other. And when we heard God coming in the garden in the cool of the day, they hid themselves from God. Now, This week, as I was recapping this for myself, it dawned on me. I was like, wait a second. If the temptation, if if the lie that Satan actually told them was so good, you would think that the moment they ate of the fruit, they would be relishing in the moment they're now like God. That they'd be like, oh my goodness, the serpent was right. This is amazing. God was withholding from me. This is the best fruit ever. They didn't do that. In fact, the very moment they ate of it was the moment they realized guilt was there. And their eyes were opened. And they knew that it was wrong. They did not celebrate just how much like God they are now. They regretted it. You know exactly what I'm talking about. You know exactly what I'm talking about. And some of us have grown numb to it, though. The moment you did something wrong, you knew it. And you were like, I hope nobody saw that. I hope nobody knows this. I hope I never have to tell anybody. And you start to wrestle with it and you immediately, instinctively, because of your sin, you hide. You cover up with fig leaves. And they felt guilt because of how unlike God they are. They realized That they fell to sin. They were wrong. They did the very thing that God told them not to do. What was wrong, they judged to be right. That's sin. That's the story of humanity. That's why we hide all the time. And God, in his grace, he comes with questions. Thank God he comes with questions. Where are you? This isn't divine hide and seek. If it was, God would be really not God because there's only two humans at this time and he lost two humans. How could he take care of everybody? That was a lame joke. Moving on. Like he asked them for their state of being like, where are you? Like right now, where are you with guilt? With the sin that you're bearing and you don't want nobody to know about. Where are you? And who told you that you were naked? Who told you that the way I created you and made you was wrong? Who told you that? And did you decide to do the very thing I told you not to do because you thought that was right? Even though I said it was wrong. Where are you with that, church? Between deciding between rights and wrong. How well have you been playing God? How has it worked out for you? Talk to me about your insecurities, your self-value and self-worth. The significance you feel. Where are you with that? The fig leaves you wear, the hiding, the shame, the guilt. The lack of relational intimacy because you don't want people to get too close. The fact that sometimes you're so afraid of God because you don't want him to see who you are. Which is another lie we fall pray to. You ever wonder why there's so much fear, so much anxiety, so much loneliness, so much insecurity, and so much pride in this world? It's because this world is broken. We have issues like mental health because we are broken, because we have decided to be God. So a friend of mine says this, and I love the way he says is as he talks about this passage. He says that this this leaves us truly with a battle between two truths. The truth of who you are as defined by the things you have done or been done to you, who you are, or the other truth of who God sees you to be. And all of life is deciding which truth you're going to live out. One truth will lead you to bondage and enslavement, fear, paranoia, guilt, shame, loneliness, anxiety. The other one will lead you to freedom. So which truth do we live out? Apart from God, we are left with defining who we are, our identity by ourselves. And what we tend to use to do that is the past. And when we do that, we trade the truth of who God sees us to be. You see, when Adam and Eve followed the lie instead of the truth, they realized that not only did they do bad, which is guilt. Guilt is the act of doing something wrong. But they've also began to believe a new thing about themselves. We are bad, which is shame. Guilt is that conviction, that, that annoying conscious of that we feel that I did something wrong. Shame is an identity marker. This is what I believe. Since I did bad, I am bad. And this is a major tactic that the enemy loves to use in our lives. He loves to keep us hiding primarily from God but hiding from ourselves when we don't take ownership of what we have done and hiding from each other. He loves to remind us of our past, what you've done. Don't you remember this? Don't you remember what you did? In fact, I know so many people come into church on Sunday and they have a hard time worshiping God because as the moment they do and the moment they want to open up their hearts and the moment they want to maybe raise their hands in worship, the moment they want to open up their Bible, there's a little voice saying, how could you do that? Don't you remember what you did last night? And then you feel that guilt and you're like, you're right. Which truth are you going to live in the truth of the past and that being your identity marker, or the truth of who God sees you as. Here's something I've realized. In my 18 years of pastoring, I've realized something. Nobody can outrun the truth. Nobody can outrun of themselves. I have counseled and prayed with and talked with People upon people upon people who have went from one relationship to another relationship, thinking that if I went from this relationship to this relationship, it would fix everything. Or from one job to another job, from one hobby to another hobby, from one state to another state, thinking that they can outrun the past of themselves, of the things that they have done or the things that have been done to them. But the reality is every single one of them, they find out that wherever they go, they are there too. There is no running away from yourself. There is no running away from your past. You can't outrun the truth. The reality is the things that you have done in the past and the things that have been done to you in the past are true. It's true. What you did is true. The thoughts you had were true. True. And Satan loves to use that and say, that's who you are. And I'm telling you, apart from Christ, unfortunately, that is then who you are. You blew it. Yeah. They hurt you. Mm-hmm. It's true. And there's nothing you can do to change it. The things you have done and the things that have been done to you in the past... Are true, but it doesn't define you. That's what's happened in the garden. If God never showed up, if God never walks into the scene, we are left with this identity of guilt and shame. But praise God, He welcomes, He walks into the story because we all right we all have crossed lines that we weren't supposed to cross we all have done that i have decided what is right and wrong you have decided what is right and wrong i have done enough friends i have done enough in my life to know that i am bad in and of myself apart from jesus i was the kid growing up whose parents made me a prayer request that maybe someday god would save that lost boy I went to a Christian school and I was reminded over and over and over by my teachers how bad I was. I didn't need anybody else to remind me that. I began to believe that. I began to understand that. And yes, quite frankly, what I did surely equated a lot of those things. That's the past. That's what I have done and that's true. There's nothing I can do today to change what I have done in the past. There's nothing I can do today to change what has been done to me in the past. So what are we left to think then? How do we return from the lines that we have crossed? How do we move towards who God says we are? First, we need to hear and we need to see how God sees us instead of how we think he sees us. There's a major difference there. How does God see us versus how we think God sees us? If I were to be honest, easily, easily once a week, I have to wrestle with the fact that God loves me. Actually, I've grown to go, that one's actually easy to believe. I believe God loves me, but it's harder for me to believe that God likes me. That God wants to be with me. That God is pleased with me. That when God looks at me, he sees me as his adopted son. Like, I have a hard time wrestling with that and believing that. So how do we cross this line? How do we get to that spot to hear and believe how God sees us? Friends... The Bible teaches us that we have to live by faith and not by sight. Live by faith and not by sight. This is what I want to talk to you about for the rest of my time I have. This is so important. Living by faith is believing in what God has done and what God has said to be true of you because of Jesus. Living by sight is believing that what has been done to me and what I have done in my past is who I am. Major difference. We either live by faith or we live by sight. Now turn with me to Psalm 139. Friends, just letting you know, I'm very passionate about this topic, okay, because this is something that I wrestle with, but it's also deeply entrenched in my family. So this hits home. This isn't just theoretical. This is up close and personal in my life. So let's turn to Psalm 139. David wrote this psalm, and he wrote this psalm probably more than likely on the back half of his life. Oh, Lord, you have searched me and you have known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path, and my lying down. And you're acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, oh, Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to the heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there or in the depths or hell. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hands shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. And I read this, I'm like, oh, isn't this guy all put together? I'm like, whoo, what a Goody goody tissue. Like that's like I'm just telling you, this, that's how I instinctively read that. I'm like, wow, super Christian right there. Because when I read this and I am fully aware of my past, and I'm fully aware of what I can do in the present and the future, I read that and I'm like, oh no. If this is true, ah like think about that. Oh Lord, you have searched me. And you know me. You know when I rise, you know when I sit. You know everything about me. You know every thought, everything. And we immediately read this and you're like, oh, this is so amazing. But, ooh. I think part of the problem with this psalm that we wrestle with is that the church has for a long time romanticized about David in the sense that he's like a hero and he's amazing as if he didn't do any wrong. And quite frankly, there are so many stories of David in the Bible that you will never hear in kids' church. So let me bring you up to speed a little bit about who David was. And yes, David was known as a man after God's own heart. The God who knew everything that David was going to do. Before God told Samuel to anoint him to be the king, it was said that he was a man after God's own heart, knowing God, knowing everything that Saul or David was going to do. He's a handsome, he's ruddy, handsome shepherd boy. He's a poet. He's a harp player, the giant slayer. I'm a giant runawayer. And I don't like the harp. There are so many stories about David that are actually shocking. He was a man with a past. He was a man who decided what was wrong, was right, and what was right was wrong multiple times. He was a man who also knew God's grace and mercy in ways that we struggle to experience. David struggled mightily with ego. You ever think about why David paraded around with Goliath's head after he killed him? He took Goliath's sword and chopped it off and took it with him all the way back to Jerusalem. And when Saul wanted to find out, he took Goliath's head and brought it right to King Saul. In fact, when David showed up to the battle lines, he overheard. Somebody saying, like, anybody would beat this Philistine Goliath that Saul would reward the one who defeats him with women, money, and prestige. Well, David had to make sure that was true because he asked two more times, what would one get for defeating Goliath? Women, money, prestige. Why did he ask that? And why did he want to know it three times? Did you ever ask that question in that story? In fact, right there is going to give us a foresight of the struggles that David had for the next 50 years. Women, money, prestige. When a rancher calls him and his men a runaway slave, insults him, David is so enraged and so infuriated that he swears by God that he's going to kill everybody at that ranch. So he tells his mighty men, get your swords, let's go. We're going to go to the ranch of Nabal and we're going to slay them all. And Abigail... The wife of Nabal hears it and she runs out and meets David on his way to commit mass murder. And she throws himself, herself down at David's feet and says that she was beautiful. And David took her and married her over an insult. He took vengeance into his own hands. In fact, we start to hear about his his family life a little bit later. His oldest son, he's got multiple kids. His oldest son rapes one of David's daughters, and David knows about it and does nothing for two years. Way to go, Dad. Well, second son can't stomach that and eventually kills son number one. The second son has so much contempt for dad, so much anger towards his dad, that he takes all of David's women to the rooftop. That's a whole other sermon for another time. And he sleeps with them, technically, basically rapes them in front of the whole city of Jerusalem to let them know there's a new man in the family. David's men chase now the second son out of the city and eventually kill him out in the woods. Well, then son three and son four realize that the throne is up for grabs. They fight it out. Son four kills son three. Towards the end of David's life, he wants to take a census. He wants to know how great he is. And one of his advisors says, David, don't do that. He's like, oh, that's good advice, but I really want to know how great I am. And that sole decision created a plague that killed 70,000 people. (laughs) David has a past. This was God's chosen king, the man after his heart. He has everything. Oh, but Bathsheba. Let's look at 2 Samuel chapter 11 for a moment. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go up to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem because now he doesn't need to fight his own battles. He's a great king. You, you go do that. Well, it happened. I just love the way it's written there. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch because he's so bored. And was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, is that not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Yeah, Sure. So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he laid with her. Then she returned to the house. The woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I'm pregnant. And the next few verses that we see is David covering his tracks, hiding from the guilt. Oh, my goodness, she's pregnant. What do I do? I don't want people to know. Uh, um, hey, tell Uriah to come home. Um, Uriah, go go sleep with your wife. like. Go take that some time and do that. Nope, I won't do that because all my men are out there battling. He tries to get Uriah drunk so that he would go home. But Uriah is so honorable, he won't do it. David's getting desperate. What do I do? You ever try to hide something in your past so much that it just begets more sin and more sin and more sin, and you have to fabricate more story and more story and more story and more lie and more lie and more lie just to keep it hidden? He eventually devises a plan to put Uriah where the battle is the fiercest to eventually, to essentially murder him. It's guilt. We have to deal with our past. We have to deal with those things. We have to deal with the truth of what we've done and what's been done to us. David is hiding and he's trying so hard to keep it hidden. Now hear me clearly. Unconfessed sin and guilt produces so much internal agony And the longer we keep it in the dark, the longer we cover it up, the longer we fabricate stories to keep it hidden, the more ingrained our shame gets. And the more ingrained our shame gets, the harder it is for us to believe in God's grace and his goodness and mercy the no longer we keep it in the dark, this guilt eventually manifests itself. And here's why we're talking about this as it relates to mental health because when guilt sits there long enough, it manifests itself through anxiety, through panic, through depression, through fear, false bravado, all consuming insecurities, and yes, even physical ailments. I promise you, I promise you during these nine months to 12 months, when David was hiding all of this story while he was burying his guilt, he was not dancing before the Lord. He wasn't writing sweet psalms and amazing times with the Lord, guaranteed. But we do know the psalms that he wrote in this season. Psalm 32, verse three through four. For when I kept silent, This is David talking about hiding the adultery, hiding the murder of Uriah. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. Do you know how much mental energy you exert just by trying to forget the guilt or to try to fabricate strategies and schemes to make sure it doesn't show up? For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. That conviction, that guilt you feel, that's that's God's grace, and we need to learn and see it as such. My strength was dried up by the heat of summer. I don't know if you ever struggled with depression, and I'm talking now not necessarily the chemical imbalance issue, but the depression where it's like you just don't even have the physical energy to get out of bed. Have you ever felt that? Psalm 51, another psalm that David wrote in this season, verse 8 and 9. He's, hey, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. And David wrote another psalm that gives us insight into unconfessed sin and guilt and how it affects our lives. Psalm 38, verses 3 through 8. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. My wounds stink and fester because of my foolishness. I am utterly bowed down and prostrate all the day I go about mourning. For my sides are filled with burning and there is no soundness in my flesh. I am feeble and crushed. I groan because of the tumult in my heart. Ever been there? There was two memories in my past where I can say I felt this type of weight. One was before I became a Christian. And I remember there were, I can't get into the whole story, but there were so many things I was doing. Drug abuse, alcohol addiction, relationship after relationship, cheating, lying, all of the above. And it came to this pivot moment where it's like I had to cry out to God. Like I got to the point of desperation. Yes, I was a church kid. But God was nothing except for just a fancy story, all this kind of stuff. But I got to the point of desperation. I'm like, maybe this is will help. And I remember praying. Oh, my goodness. I remember praying. I'm just going to say it. I was supposed to be the designated driver that night as we went to a party at UW-Madison. And I had every intention of being sober and being the designated driver, but I got, you know. And I drove home on an interstate with a bunch of friends. And by God's grace, I still don't know how we made it home, but I remember laying in bed and feeling beyond pathetic. Oh my goodness, God, I can't believe that I can't even do what I want to do. God, would you help me? In fact, God, if you are going, if you can like change me and maybe erase my whole past so I don't have to confess any of it and I don't have to tell anybody of anything, I will follow you. I started to barter with God. But that gave God an open door to my heart and his hand became heavy upon me. His spirit became heavy on me. I felt the guilt and the weight of it. Like I actually got literally sick. I remember going to work and my boss told me to go home because you look horrible. Because the whole time I was so full of anxiety and Dread, And I couldn't stop thinking about it. And it was just creating so much havoc in my heart and my health that I eventually had to tell somebody and confess. And that ended up leading me to professing faith in Jesus. Oh, but there was another time when I'd already been walking with Jesus. Sin from my past started to resurface. And I was so ashamed of it. and I didn't want anybody to know. So I just buried it. Manufactured some stories, told some half truths and white lies so that way I didn't really have to tell people. And the Holy Spirit weighed heavy on me for a season. And that heaviness did a lot. Like, it started to manifest itself in anxiety where I started to feel panic attacks. Like, because of that guilt, I was feeling like, I thought I was having heart attacks. I remember going to the ER a few times going, what's wrong with me? And they hook you up to the EKG, and they're like, dude, you're fine. Maybe you're having a panic attack. I don't have panic attacks. Talked to a good friend of mine, and he's like, do you have something you need to confess? No, no. Ever been there? 2 Corinthians 7.10. For godly grief, this word here in the Greek really refers itself to conviction, pain, guilt, a searing conscience. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, freedom, cleansing, Whereas worldly grief, worldly guilt produces death. That's the stuff we do to hide. I feel guilty and we fail to remember that. Maybe that's God's grace and His love saying, bring it into the light so I can heal you, so you're not enslaved to this, so you don't begin to believe that you are bad. This is God's love. It's His grace that He would bring us in that state. James 4 tells us that he longs or envies intensely with the spirit that he's put inside of us. And we're exhorted in that passage to confess our sins, to humble ourselves, to weep and mourn because of those things that we have done. Bring it into the light because as we humble ourselves, he will exalt us, he will forgive us, he will restore us. Hebrews 12, verses 5 through 7. Have you forgotten the exhortation that God addresses you as sons and daughters? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him, when you feel the guilt and the, and the conviction of sin. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastises the one he receives. It is discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons and daughters. Look at how God did this to David, Second Samuel verses 12, verse one, or chapter 12, verse one. "The Lord sent Nathan to David. This is roughly about 12 months after Bathsheba conceived. The Lord sent Nathan to David. And Nathan gives this parable. And as David hears it, he gets so angry at the injustice. He's like, kill that person. Bring that person to justice. And Nathan, in verse 7, turns it around and says, you, David, are that man. David, own it. Face it, David. It's the truth. You did it. You can't lie from it. You can't run from it. You can't cover it up. You are the man. Verse 9, why, David, have you despised the word of the Lord? Why have you decided to do what is right in your own eyes? What God said was wrong, you decided was right. You did what was evil in his sight. You have struck down Uriah the Hittite. You murdered him and you took his wife to be your wife and you killed him with the sword. David, verse 13, David owns it. He chose, he chose to walk by faith and not by sight. Verse 13, David said to Nathan, Sinned against the Lord. And then Nathan said to David, so important, and this is where I want to talk now. The Lord has also put away your sin. Grace. Mercy. Reminds me of Proverbs 28:13. Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper. Friends, listen to that. Whoever conceals his transgression will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them, repentance, will obtain mercy. David, through God's grace, was able to face the truth of what he did. He saw it, and he knew how broken he was, and he owned it. He knew the damage that was caused. He knew what he was going to end up reaping because of what he sown. Understanding all of that, I read Psalm 139 completely different. I don't see a self-righteous guy saying, God knows everything about me, and it's wonderful. What I see is a man who goes, he knows everything about me. He knows every thought. I've tried to run. I've been at the highest mountains. I tried to bury myself in the depths. I tried to go into darkness, and he was there. And his thoughts are altogether too wonderful for me. He's he's there, he sees, he loves. He knew all the days that he's created. He knew them all. He formed me. I'm fearfully, wonderfully made. And David even says, search me, oh God. I don't want to hide anymore. Test me, oh God. See if there's any wayward peace inside of me. I don't want to hide anymore. I want to live in the light as you are in the light. And that's why we have Psalm 32. And yes, I deliberately chose to leave out powerful parts of that psalm. When David experienced the restoration, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed, peace, happiness, joy. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in his spirit there is no deceit. Psalm 51 have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Confess the sin. Friends, listen, confess the sin, forsake it, come out of the dark, drop the leaves, stop hiding, stop pretending that everything is okay, stop pretending that you are someone that you are not. You have to deal with the guilt. You have to deal with the guilt so that you can embrace the life transformation that only Jesus can give you. If you don't deal with the guilt, if you don't bring what's in the dark into the light, you will never, ever experience the freedom we have in Jesus. You just won't. Psalm 86, 5. For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving. Memorize this one. For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Twenty-one years I've been following Jesus, and here's what I've discovered. I'm a great sinner. Jesus is a great Savior. I'm a great sinner, and God is a great Savior. So we can either hide from ourselves, hide from others, and hide from God, or we can come into the light. Walk by faith or walk by sight. Sight would say blame others for where we are today. Blame others for my lot in life. Blame others for this and that. Blame my circumstance. Blame this. Blame that. And that's sight. Faith, own what you have done. And confess it. Bring it into the light. God is more ready to forgive you than we are willing to ask for forgiveness. How many of you have ever entertained a thought this is so bad God can't forgive it? I am so bad God can't love me. You know what that is? It's pride. It's complete arrogance. That's you standing in front of the cross and saying, that's not enough. The son of God being beaten and crucified and mocked and spat upon, it's not enough. My sin is so much worse than that. That can't cover me. We need to stop the nonsense and the cycle babble that we, ooh, that was harsh, that we... we, that we've picked up from our culture where it says, you just got to forgive yourself. You can't. You don't have the authority to forgive yourself. Your job as as one who lives underneath the authority of Christ is to own it and to confess it. And the one who has the authority to forgive you is God. He alone can forgive sins. So this whole, like, I got to forgive myself, I got to do all this, like, that's not going to help you. You can't move on from your past until you receive God's grace. And this is why this is so beautiful. Psalm 103, verse 10 through 12. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us or according to our iniquities, as far as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Friends, listen. Don't try to resurrect what God has buried. Your sins, when you confess it to Jesus, are removed buried we tend to dredge it right back up and to recycle it and to entertain it and to allow it to define us again and again if god says you are forgiven faith would say i am forgiven you live by faith or you live by sight second corinthians chapter 5 if anyone if anyone is in christ if you have professed faith in Jesus, this is you. If you are in Christ, you are a new creation. The old, the past has gone away. The old has passed. Behold, the new has come. And all of this is from God. It's not from you. There's nothing you have done. It's all through Christ who reconciled us, who brought us back into relationship with himself. And he gave us the church, this ministry of reconciliation, imploring others to be reconciled with God. That is, Christ was reconciling the world. Look at this. Not counting their sins against them. This is a greater truth than the truth of what we have done. Sight would say, continue to hide from yourself, hide from others, and hide from God. Faith says, no, I'm going to accept the greater truth that because I'm in Christ Jesus, I'm a new creation, and the old is gone. Yes, I did this. And yes, it was done to me but this is not who I am. Being a new creation in Christ is a far greater truth than anything that we have done in the past. David, oh David, you are an adulterer, You are a liar, you are a murderer, you are a passive dad, you have family dysfunction, you allowed your son to rape your daughter, you did nothing about it, you had another son who raped all of your wives, that's all true, David can't deny it. But there's a greater truth. I confessed my sin, David would say, and he covered it. He cleansed me. The old is gone, the new has come. Sight would say, believe that we are what we have done. Faith, daily remind yourselves of how God sees you. I'm going to ask for an extension of time. This is so important. I wrestle fiercely with this one. Fiercely. Fiercely. I wrestle with my shame. There are times when I'm afraid to go back to my hometown. I'm afraid to go back to Beaverdam, Wisconsin because I don't want people to see me. I don't want people to be like, you're a pastor? Please. We know what you did in 1996, 1997, 1998. Oh, in 99. I had an email from a high school teacher a few years ago. And I never replied because I was so ashamed. I wrestle with entertaining the past, the things that I have done. I even wrestle with the abuse that has been done to me in my past. I wrestle with allowing that to define me and I start to believe that. I'm a bad dad. I'm a horrible pastor. I'm this, I'm that. God can't love me. God can't forgive me. I've allowed so many years and all of that buildup has led me to great anxiety, depression, and suicidal tendencies. And God rescued me from all of that. Because I discovered 1 John 1.9. That shame can overwhelm. But if we confess our sins, oh my goodness, Jesus is faithful and just to forgive and to cleanse. Friends, we are so great with the forgiving part. Yep, God forgave me, but we Think at believing God cleansed me from my past. That what I did back here, he no longer sees. He doesn't regard it. It's washed. It's cleansed. It's removed. But I, and I know many of us, recycle that guilt, recycle that shame, and we put it on us. And we go, nope, that's a greater truth. But that's living by sight. Living by faith says, no, I'm forgiven, I'm loved, I'm adopted, and I am a new creation in Christ Jesus. Friends, this is what we oftentimes we do. This is life, right? Y'all should know what this is. This is a windshield. And when you think about a car, you look through the windshield because you need to know where you're going. You need to see it. You see the present and you see the eventual future. This is where I'm heading. But so many of us live. Okay, how do I do this? Backwards. Well, I ain't gonna show up. So many of us live with the past as our filter. We keep it in front of us all the time. It's our obstacle. Even when we come to God's word, we look at this through the lens of our past. I know there's so many of you that are afraid of God because you don't want God to bring it up. You're afraid that maybe God's going to bring up some secret dark sin in your life, and you're going to have to do it again, and he's just doing it to shame you, to guilt you. And we allow this to dictate everything, but here's the irony of it all. When you think about driving, we have a whole other thing. This little rear view mirror is so small because this has no bearing on where we are going. It just reminds us of what we ran over or what we nearly missed our past. This is what the cross has done for us. The past is there, it's true but it doesn't define you. It doesn't dictate where you're going. The past can help you where you're going, remind you of the truth of where you are, but then you stand and say, I have such a great savior that he forgave me of my sins. You have no reason to fear, no reason to hide. He's forgiven it. He's cleansed it. So I want to challenge you. Live by faith. Live by sight. Now I understand that a bit of a heavy topic. Some of you are feeling a little fear. Some of you are even rejoicing in remembering how God healed you, cleansed you from some of that. But I'm willing to bet that there's some of you right now that need to get things out of the dark and into the light because it's affecting how you're living right now. You have a hard time believing that God loves you, God likes you, God's got good intentions for you because you allow your past to define and dictate everything instead of allowing it to inform and to be a place of celebration and praise. Not that you did those things, but that God redeemed and restored those things. So I ask you the same question. God asked Adam and Eve in the garden, where are you? I want to encourage you. If you need prayer this morning, you need someone to talk to, there will be people on the worship team. I'll be available. BJ will be available. Josh is back there. Lucas is over there. Talk. Bring it into the light. Don't walk out of here and allow Satan to begin to steal these truths from you. Jesus, I thank you for your word. I thank you that it is alive and active, that it is true, that you do convict of sin and righteousness, that you do bring life. You do these things because you don't want us to hide. You don't want us to live in oppression. You don't want to live in fear. You don't want us to be enslaved to sin. You don't want to allow us to have our past define us. You are the one who defines us. We are a new creation. You reconciled us. You died for us. You shed your blood for us. You took on our shame for us. You adopted us. And there was nothing we could do. Nothing. Zero. Nothing. God, forgive us for standing in front of the cross and daring to say and daring to believe that the cross is not enough. Forgive us for that, Lord. It is more than enough. So, Lord, I pray for freedom, I pray for healing. Lord, we want to be a church that walks in the light as you are in the light. So if any of you do need prayer, I want to encourage you. We'll even stand off to the side so you don't have to feel like, oh my goodness, there's the person coming up with the secret sin. We don't want that. I want to encourage you, please. Come up for prayer if you need it. And use this time. If you're not at that spot yet, use this time. And let the words of this song just minister to your heart.